In November of 2013, the strongest tropical cyclone ever recorded at landfall hit the Philippines. With the strongest ever sustained wind, 195 miles per hour sustained for one minute. And that was just one minute of an extremely long, destructive storm. The cyclone caused catastrophic damage, destroying entire towns and villages. A 6,300 confirmed deaths. One million people were homeless. One little girl managed to reach the, one of the evacuation centers as the typhoon came. And the waters began rushing in and the wind and the gust began uh, its deafening roar. And this little girl's mother shouted at her to go up on the second floor. And as she was getting up on the second floor in the midst of the storm and the wind and the, just the frightening atmosphere, at that moment she just cried out this prayer, Jesus, please, enough. Jesus, please, enough. And somehow that prayer just cuts my heart and resonates with my spirit. That little girl, that little girl resonates with us. That little girl speaks for us, for me. And I know that we live in the United States, greatest nation on the planet. I know that. And, and you know, most of us have you know, everything we need. And yet, you know, this is a broken world. It's a fallen world. And we see this brokenness. And, you know, and we say, Jesus, please, enough. And it's enough to worry us about our future, even in our nation. And we wonder, what kind of a nation are we going to leave behind for our kids, for our grandchildren? And we don't even need to think that far ahead, do we? You know, we're just kind of concerned, okay, what's going to happen by the end of this year? When we get a new government, and what's that going to look like? And, and we don't even need to look that far. We kind of look at our own little state government, and it's enough to make us dizzy. And then, you know, it, it zooms in even closer to our own personal issues, our personal finances, and our personal future, and our own personal health, my personal health, and... I've told you all about uh, you know, my issues with prostate cancer, and I'm grateful. My last appointment with my doctor, he says, you, you know, things are stable with you, and we're going to continue our active surveillance, and you know, I feel fine, and I'm grateful for that, but it's just kind of in the back of my mind, it's just kind of there. And I, then there's my own struggles just spiritually you know, with pride and with legalism. Jesus, please, enough. You know, 
Life is just hard. Would you not agree with me? So her prayer is our prayer. And her prayer is the cry of an Old Testament book that I would like for us to study this summer. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Lamentations. And you'll find that on page 685 of your church Bibles. And here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like to first just kind of take you into a seminary classroom setting and give you an introduction to Lamentations. It doesn't sound really exciting, you know, seminary classroom, really. Just 10 minutes. You can do anything for 10 minutes. But I think this will really help once you understand, you know, what a lament is and why this book exists in the Bible and how it is constructed, it will really help us as we journey through this book this summer. So I just want to take a, uh, some time to introduce the book of Lamentations. Uh, then I want to zoom in on Lamentations chapter 1 this morning. And then I want, to, I want to go for your heart, okay? I want to get personal here with how this book speaks to our hearts and our lives in the here and the now. So that's where we're going here this morning. And, and you know, we talk about our church being a life-changing community of authentic believers passionately pursuing Christ. I don't know how many stories I've heard of inauthentic churches led by inauthentic pastors, and I just pray that that is not our experience here. Well, I hope that if you're here that you see that, you know, this, what you see is what you get. And, and, and what you see is a congregation led by a pastor, a, a congregation and a pastor. We are sinners <laughs> saved by a really good and gracious and merciful God. And amen. So this book just... Uh, uh, exudes authenticity, and that's what makes it important uh, for us in our lives. So let's introduce ourselves to the book of Lamentations, starting with the question, what is a lamentation anyway? What, what is a lament? Well, uh, biblically speaking, a lament has a threefold meaning. It's a cry of protest. It's a plea for mercy. It's a petition for help. That's what a lament is. A protest, a plea, a petition. It's a protest. God, I don't like this. I don't like this. Don't you wish that, you know, you could just say that? Well, Lamentations gives us permission to. God, I don't like this. It's a protest. But then it's also a plea. Um, I don't like this. And I know that I contributed to this. I'm, I'm sorry I contributed to this. A cry of protest, a plea for mercy, and then a petition. Remember me. Help me. I, I, my life has become unmanageable. I need help. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about a, a lament. 
a lamentation, a protest, a plea, a petition. Well, that said, then, what is being lamented in this book? Well, lamentations uh, deals with one of the greatest failures in Israel's history. The fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the exile of the nation as a whole into Babylonian captivity. They came as slaves to the Babylonian empire. That's what's being lamented. The loss of, what happened to my country? It's gone. It's an exile. Fallen to a foreign power. In fact, the Old Testament comes to us by way of the Hebrew language. And in the Hebrew, the title of the book, Lamentations, is not the word Lamentations. The title is simply one word, how. How? How did this happen? Uh, it's based on verse 1. How lonely sits the city. How is it possible that this beautiful city is now an ash heap? Well, all you have to do is read your Old Testament and you can see what happened after the reigns of Saul and David and Solomon, uh, what historians consider the golden age of Israel. After Solomon's death, Israel had a split. Ten tribes to the north called Israel. Two tribes to the south called Judah. And they had their own kings and their own histories. And you can read about them in First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And, and every king in the northern kingdom was corrupt. Every king was a rascal. Everyone was bad. And Finally, the Assyrian Empire came and swallowed whole the ten northern tribes, and they basically dissolved into history. The southern tribe was then put on notice, and the prophet said, Go to God, seek God, seek His Word, love Him, love others, stick with God. Stick with God. Don't mess with the nations. Don't do that. All oh, will be all right. We have the temple. We have, that was kind of like our lucky charm. As long as we got the temple, we're going to be okay. We're going to be, we've got the temple. And then Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came knocking. And the prophet said, Nebuchadnezzar's coming, and that's a foregone conclusion. So just cooperate with him. Don't, don't side with Egypt. Don't do it. Don't side. No, we got the temple. We're going to be okay. But it wasn't okay. And Nebuchadnezzar was so frustrated with the leadership, the Poor leadership of Judah in the year 586 B.C. After losing his patience, he had his commander, a brilliant general by the name of Nebuzaradan, surround the city, and he was so frustrated, he gave the order to Nebuzaradan, torch the city. And so the city walls were breached, and according to Jeremiah 52.13, he burned the house of the Lord. That's the temple. The king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. So go home after church. Take the cover off your Weber and look at the ash heap there. That's what Jerusalem looked like after Nebuzaradan was done. And Zedekiah, Judah's last king, 
Well, he fled, idiot king. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar captured him, brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, and the very last thing Zedekiah saw before his eyes were gouged out was the execution of his sons. And he died in prison. It was ruthless. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar didn't mess around. He took all of the educated people, all of the capable people, and he just deported them to Babylon. He took the cream. He took the best. The, those that uh, survived, he took them, took them to Babylon, and he left the least capable poorest people behind because they wouldn't cause him any trouble. That's why. And that's what we see in 2 Kings 25, 12. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So, so like the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, he went to Babylon. Uh, Ezekiel, prophet, he went to Babylon. Jeremiah stayed. Jeremiah stayed behind. And you'll notice that Lamentations follows the book of Jeremiah. Um, and so Lamentations has often been associated with or attributed to Jeremiah as the author. But the fact is, we really don't know. Um, the author, whom we'll call the poet, is anonymous. Anonymous. And this has meaning. Because this is poetry. There's meaning behind the anonymity. And it's something like this. This catastrophe has left me with no identity. I don't even know who I am anymore. I'm unrecognizable. My nation is gone. I don't know where, where's my nation go? Where am I? Who am I? And so this anonymous poet writes artistically and poetically as a means of emotional therapy. Trying to heal. Art as a means of rehabilitating the shattered soul. That's what's going on here. So Lamentations is a set of five poems. Five laments. Which describe on a deep emotional, and psychological level, the profound grief of irreparable loss, cataclysmic loss, loss that renders lives and livelihoods unrecognizable. So we have five poems, five laments. Each chapter is a poem. Each chapter is a lament. And since it's poetry, the style is this. It's based on an acrostic, an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. So that's why in chapter 1, you'll see 22 verses. Chapter 1, the topic of chapter 1 is pain. We'll get there in just a moment. And each verse corresponds with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there's Aleph. That's our version, uh, their version of our, our, our A. Beth, that would be B, etc. So verse 1 begins with Aleph, A, how? Uh, verse 2, B, and this goes on to 22 verses. We have 26 letters in our alphabet. 
The Hebrew language has 22 verses in its alphabet. Pain is the theme of chapter 1. Flip over to chapter 2. Chapter 2, the theme uh, is uh, wrath of God. Wrath of God. And it too has 22 verses, and each verse corresponds to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, you see. And we're going to talk about that next week, wrath of God. And I, you know, I, I know what maybe some of you might be thinking, especially if you're new to church. Well, this is why I stopped going to church, because the pastors would get up and rant about the wrath of God. And so I totally get that. I really do. I understand. Uh, but, but here's the deal, really. Really, really, you, you really, really want judicial wrath. You really, really do. You really, really want judicial wrath in your life. You do. Uh, and I don't have time to explain that. Come next week, okay? So that's my teaser, all right? That's my teaser for you. But so chapter 1 is pain. Chapter 2, wrath of God. Chapter 3, uh, flip, you have uh, the theme is hope, hope. And notice there's 66 verses. That's going to be a long sermon. Um, but just kidding. So verses, but it still keeps the acrostic. Because it's in groups of three, all right? So verses one through three correspond to the Hebrew Aleph, A, four through six, Beth, B, and so on and so forth. When we get to chapter four, uh, the, the key word is consequences, consequences. So you've got uh, pain, you've got wrath of God, you've got hope, you've got consequences. And you notice there's 22 verses and we go back to the acrostic. Verse 1 corresponds with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 2, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and so on and so forth. Okay? So pain, wrath of God, hope, consequences. And then in chapter 5, the key word is remember. Remember. And you'll notice there's 22 verses, but there's no acrostic. There's no acrostic. It's as if... The poet is just fatigued, you know? Uh, and, and so even in this lament, there's structure. So this poet is sitting on this ash heap trying to order his life, but it can't be ordered it's frenzied, it's muddled, it's chaotic. This is the life that's been handed to him. And he tries to order it for four chapters. He tries to find some structure. But by the time he gets to the to chapter 5, he just kind of runs out of steam. And Lamentations just limps to a close. You see that? Lamentations doesn't end triumphantly, uh, you know, like uh, a Rudyard Kipling's famous poem, If, right? If you can keep your head while all about you are losing theirs. If you can feel the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Yours is the earth and everything in it. And what's more, you'll be a man, my son. Never, 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 never give up.
That's my best Winston Churchill. Yeah. Yeah. But that ain't Lamentations. You know? You want to know how Lamentations ends? Chapter 5, verses 20 through 22. Here's how, here's how Lamentations ends. Ah! It's like my body pump class. That's, that's how it ends for me. I don't know about you. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The end. <laughs> Jesus, please, enough. So don't, don't you wish you could go to a church where it's okay to say that? Don't you wish you could belong to a small group? Don't you wish you had brothers and sisters in Christ that just, but you can really, it's safe to say that. Church family, Lamentations gives us that permission. Jesus, please, Enough. So with that in mind, let's read chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. 
The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. From on high He sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He's left me stunned Faint all the day long, my transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me, for I have been very rebellious in the street the sword bereaves in the house. It is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many. And my heart is faint. This is God's word. Jesus, please, enough. So now, did you notice two voices in chapter one? Two voices speak. The voice of the poet, and then the voice of um, Lady Zion. Lady Zion. Generally, verses 1 through 11 are spoken by the poet. And then verses 12 through 22 are spoken by Lady Zion. What do they say? Well, in verses 1 through 11, the poet's voice says basically this. Look at you. Look at you. How did this happen? What on earth has happened to you? How lonely sits the city that was full of people. This, how, how could this stunningly beautiful 
queen of the Middle East becomes such an impoverished and widowed slave who can't stop crying all night long. She can't sleep at night because she weeps bitterly all throughout the night with tears on her cheeks. In fact, we don't even know who this weeping widow is. You read this cold and you say, well, who is this? Who is this? And it's in verse 7 that we finally are realize, well, this is Jerusalem. What? What? Unrecognizable. Look at you. The, the extreme totality of Jerusalem's destruction and destitution is told by extreme words, all and none. All and none. Do you notice how those appear throughout this chapter? All. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. All her pursuers have overtaken her. All her gates are desolate. All her majesty has departed. All her people groan. All her enemies have heard her trouble. All of her transgressions. All. All and none. None what? No comfort. Verse 2, she has none to comfort her. Verse 9, she has no comforter. Verse 12, uh, excuse me, verse 16, a comforter is far from me. 17, none to comfort. 21, no one to comfort me. All and none. Verse 4 tells us that the road to Zion should be jammed with pilgrims singing these psalms of ascent on the trip to the temple for worship. There should be celebration and festivity. I was glad when they said to me, we'll go to the house of the Lord. Instead, there's nothing, nothing. No gates, no city, no temple. The road is empty. It's a ghost town. Just rubble, just ashes. Look at you, the poet, verses 1 through 11. And then in verses 12 to 22, the other voice speaks, that of Lady Zion herself. And you know what she says. Look at me. Look, will somebody notice me? Doesn't anybody care about me? Verse 12, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see. My neck is bound. My feet are tangled as in a net. My stomach churns. My heart is faint. My groans are many. My enemies are glad about it all. Oh, Jesus, please, enough, enough. And it really doesn't get any happier. Lamentation. And, and you know, before I go any further, I want you to know I want you to know that I know and I sense and I feel how uncomfortable scriptures like these are. You know, those of us who are Americans, we, we really, we have such a hard time with this. You know? You know why, don't you? Because we're eternal optimists. We're success-driven, we're growth-driven, we're numbers-driven and body-count-driven. we got this manifest destiny in our nation's history, and the chart is always on the, the grow up and up and up and up. If I were planting a church, I would never preach my first sermon on lamentations. I would never do that. But do you know that the founding pastor of Cambridge Community Fellowship Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's exactly what he did. Pastor Suchan Ra. 
Cambridge Community Fellowship Church was started in an urban area between MIT and Harvard, a place called Central Square. And at the time, in the late 90s, it was coined Central Scare. It was a very difficult neighborhood. And so here you have this really um, ordained environment where on the one hand you have very privileged students and then you have this, this hard area, harsh, difficult, urban neighborhood. But now there's a flourishing Christian community there, a church. And Pastor Ra's first series was over lamentations. And why is that? Here are his words. The triumph and success orientation of American Christianity needs the corrective of stories about suffering and struggle. So you see, Lamentations laughs at the tissue paper thin theology of health and wealth gospel. Just laughs at it. My mind is thinking of um, Admiral Jim Stockdale. Admiral Stockdale was the highest ranking officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp during the height of the Vietnam War. And in his book, uh, From Good to Great, Collins, Jim Collins asked Admiral Stockdale about the prisoner of war camp. Collins asked Stockdale this question, who didn't make it out? Who didn't make it out? Stockdale said, well, that's easy. The optimists. The optimists, responded Collins. I don't understand. Stockdale said, the optimists. Oh, they were the ones who said, well, we're going to be up by Christmas. And Christmas would come and go. And then they'd say, well, we're going to be up by Easter. And Easter would come and go. And eventually, they died of a broken heart. And the point, these are his words, never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Let me say that again. Never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Well, lamentation does just that. And so here's our big idea for this morning. Here it is. In the unbearable pain of your brutal reality, there is a God who mercifully provides sanctuary. In the unbearable pain of your brutal reality, there's a God who provides a safe place, a refuge. Even in your unbearable pain, He mercifully provides sanctuary. That's what I see in chapter 1. And you may be asking, well, where's the sanctuary, Pastor? It's right here. It's here if we'll look. Here it is. In the unbearable pain of your brutal reality, God mercifully provides the sanctuary of prayer. You see, that's what 
Lamentations is. Lamentations is prayer. Lamentations is not from the lips of one who has lost faith in God. Rather, it is from the lips of one who stubbornly and relentlessly believes God. Look, oh Lord, see, I am not going to quit believing that you exist and that you have eyes and that you're sovereign. Recall what we said earlier about biblical lament, cry of protest, plea for mercy, petition for help. So to lament is to acknowledge God exists and that God is sovereign over my unmanageable life. So to lament is to confess that my life has become unmanageable and to lament is to confess that I'm responsible for that. I own that. You see, Lady Zion is fully aware of how this has happened. She knows that her current reality is her own doing. Verse 5, her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her. What? For the multitude, multitude of her transgressions. And then verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. And then in verse 9, O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Well, of course they have. Verse 19, I called to my lovers. What's Israel doing having lovers? I thought Yahweh was her sole husband. What is she doing? Commit adultery with all these other nations calling them lovers. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. Well, of course they did. What did you expect them to do? These were the very nations from whom God had told her to stay away. Yeah, but I didn't think the consequences were going to be this severe. Well, they are. Of course, church family, it is true. And not all suffering is self-inflicted. That, that needs to be said. The book of Job is about suffering that is not self-inflicted. That said, much of our suffering is. Much of our suffering is our own doing. Much of our suffering is from ignoring wisdom. Much of our suffering is from assuming that well, we're different and you know, that, that, that we're the exception, or somehow we can beat the odds. Church family, there's a word for that. It's called denial. In his book, Denial, uh, Richard Tedlow wrote, Denial is when we ignore the obvious. And why? Why would someone ignore the obvious? Because you simply don't want to look facts in the face. You know the consequences, but you don't know. You see, but you don't see. And then he gives this definition of denial. Denial is the unconscious calculus that if an unpleasant reality were true, it would be too terrible, so therefore it cannot be true. Israel discovered otherwise. There is a voice that is missing in Lamentations. 
God's voice. He never speaks, which is intentional. God's silence is an invitation for us to leave the fatal fiction of denial and to come out into the light of truth, to confess truth, to admit our inability, to move away from the blame shifting and the offering of the very excuses that keep us stuck. So what are you in denial about today? What, what fact are you afraid to get your face into? What obvious truth are you intentionally ignoring? What do you need to get honest about before God and others? Well, in our pain, God provides a safe place. He provides a sanctuary, and that is prayer. Prayer. So pray. But there's another sanctuary that I want to mention. The sanctuary of prayer is for those who are really kind of identifying more with ladies Zion. But some of you need to identify with the poet. And for that, we must remember that in our unbearable pain, God provides the sanctuary of witness. Witness. You see, the poet is there writing about this because the poet is an eyewitness coming alongside of Lady Zion who is experiencing unspeakable pain and seeing and noticing and witnessing Lady Zion stretches out her hands. No one is there to comfort her. And the challenge is to the poet, and really the challenge is to us as the reader of this book. Well, you know, who feels invisible in your life? Who feels alone? Will we see and will we comfort? And I mean right now. I mean like right out in the lobby after our services. Are our eyes open to see? And we say, well, you know, you know, they can come to the elders afterwards up front, and they can go see Randy in the fireside room. Well, yeah, they can. And you know what? They can come to you too. And if in your spirit you sense that someone needs a, a look, a word, a prayer, you know, be the presence of Jesus with them and to them. There is relief in affirming Words of witness, there is. A bell hooks is the name of a, a pen name of a writer, um, Gloria Jean Watkins. And so she wrote of a conversation with her mother on the liberating effect of gaining a witness. She said, one day I called my mother. I said, Mama, Daddy never loved me. He never loved me. He didn't love me. And Mama would say, oh, of course he loved you. Yeah, of course he did. He did this, and he did this, and he did this. And, and, and I'd get so frustrated and, and, and torturous hours of this. And, and, and finally, finally, after this awful conversation, Daddy didn't love me. Finally, Mom stopped suddenly and said, you know what? You're right. He didn't. 
He didn't love you. And Bell Hooks said this, the moment she acknowledged the truth of what I had experienced was a moment of relief. The moment she affirmed the reality of what had taken place, I was released because somehow, here it is, it's the act of living the fiction that produces such tortuous angst and anguish. We have the opportunity to be someone's sanctuary as we affirm their hardship. And Lamentations is therefore a set of lenses through which we see others. And so, you know, when we... send out our church family on missions trips. We're not sending them out as fixers, but comforters, witnesses, helpers, coming alongside, helping in a way that truly helps. When we send out servants locally, our Cradle to Career initiative with kindergarten readiness, we don't do this to be do-gooders, but so that we can truly see See the lives that matter to God, affirming them, entering into their world to come near. Emmanuel, God with us. In unbearable pain, God provides prayer as our sanctuary. And in His mercy, God provides our lives to be a sanctuary to affirm and to help the healing of the pain of others. That's why I got on chapter 1. But look at verse 12. Look and see. If there's any sorrow like my sorrow which has been brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. We look at that verse and we see that's Lady Zion, but we, we know who else that is, don't we? Don't we? Because this poem of pain pushes us to look ahead to the one who himself took on the pain of our sin. You see, in the unbearable pain of our brutal reality brought on by ourselves, God sent His Son. And like Lady Zion, Jesus wept. Like her, He was abandoned by His friends. Like her, He was mocked by those who passed by. Like her, He was stripped naked and publicly humiliated. Like her, Jesus lamented, my God, my God, why? And like her, God was silent. And like her, he became unclean, defiled by sin that was not his own, but because God made him to be sin for us. The cross is our sanctuary. The cross is our shelter. The cross is our safe place where we can find refuge. And the cross is our hope. 
And Paul tells us in Romans 5, 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Praise be to God. Amen.